Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Monroe Live podcast. Today, we have a great guest, Brendan Jones, the CEO of Blink. And uh, he has really an amazing career. I think 21 years at Nissan, a little bit of time at EBGo, Electrify America, and now at Blink. So uh, really a great guest having you on today. And I think our viewers would really like to get a little bit of context of your journey. Can you start at Nissan and maybe introduce yourself and go from there? Sure, absolutely. So I'm Brendan Jones. And I've, I've been in this great space uh, now since officially 2008 while I was at Nissan. And I got assigned a study project on uh, trying to map out what EV customers and EV drivers would look like, what their needs were, how they differentiated from uh, internal combustion engine customers. And, and that started it all. Uh, and from there at Nissan, I moved in to take over the role of leading uh, both the vehicle sales and the Nissan Leaf when it was introduced, and building out infrastructure. Um, and it was interesting back then. So uh, we were the first mass-produced vehicle out. Uh, so there was still a lack of understanding of what infrastructure was. Um, and we actually began selling the car, selling the car, and there was no DC fast chargers in the ground. And the debate was still brewing if you even needed more than one ten. So yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, charging speed for DCs was. 24 kilowatts up to 50 oh my yeah and 50 kilowatt units were you know 65 to 70 thousand dollars to purchase one of those units uh so you fast forward um you, you know we we helped evgo structure into a full u.s presence uh they had a settlement in california and some business in texas uh so we bought into them at nissan i sat on the board for a little while uh and then they recruited me over uh to be a vice president there um, and we're eventually going to move uh, things around, but they got bought out. Uh, EVGO has now been sold four times uh, s since I left them. And when all that was going on, uh, I had a lot of friends at VW uh, who were working through the settlement, and they said, hey, you know, when we get to structuring this new company, would you be interested in coming on? And I said, yeah, sure. So I was the first employee there and the COO for the company for almost four years. Uh, before Blink came knocking on the door and said, hey, you want to be president and then, uh, you know, take over? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So uh, here we are today. So uh, I think, you know, I characterize my career as, uh, you know, at the early stage, a lot of experimentation, uh, making a lot of mistakes, learning from those mistakes uh, as we've moved forward. And it is a, it's a journey of constant education on what chargers are all about, uh, the different cards, cars, the different methodologies of charging, and try and bring practicality to what is, uh, it's interesting, it's a very emotional space, uh, as well as very progressive and, and very cutting edge. So uh, we're always trying to bring the common sense approach, uh, how to spend our capital wisely to get as many ports out there for the EV driving public as possible. Man, you're like the grandfather of EV charging or, or the, the charging Don, you know? Yeah, there's a couple of us out there that oh have been God. around for a long time. So uh, I'll take grandfather. I'll let, we don't have any grandkids yet. So, uh, but uh, God willing, we will one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really incredible uh, that you were in the early stages back then with the Nissan Corporation because you're right, uh, charging has come such a long way. And I still feel like, we're at the a little bit past infancy where things are starting to kind of take shape and your company right now blink is really active in multiple continents you know so you have a presence in the middle east europe and the americas can you go a little bit uh, over blink's business plan and the products you offer and then some of the services cuz i i i notice you have some services where uh, you have 440,000 people signed up to the Blink uh, network. So can you maybe explain for our listeners and our viewers what that means? Yeah, sure. So Blink is, it's, it's a company that's been around uh, since 2009, actually. And it was one of the first companies, we, even when I was at Nissan, we helped fund by either providing them free charges or a degree of funding uh, back in those days so they can get a footprint across the United States. Now, it's gone through some ebbs and flows uh, since that time, but in 2018, it got publicly listed on NASDAQ uh, and was able to produce a product on their own that was quite perceptive. The marketplace responded to it positively. Um, however, it didn't really see its big growth span until uh, till 2020. 
And when I joined in that time around March, it had about 40 employees. We now have 650 employees in the company. We're now operating in 27 different countries. And we, we, we do everything that needs to be done in charging, meaning we'll sell equipment if somebody wants that. We'll own and operate the equipment. So we'll put it in the ground, own and operate it, and maintain it. Um, when we sell it, we'll also operate it for you, and then you get the revenue, but we'll charge an operations uh, fee for that. And we do fleet services uh, as well. And we launched a brand new network, and that network, as you just said, it supports all of our customers globally. Um, and we just integrated in uh, the SemiConnect network because we bought that company last year. Um, we bought two other charging companies in Europe, what helped establish our, our European side. So what Blink wants to do is they want to be the charging company that doesn't say no to any of the customers. And it doesn't matter whether that is a municipality, uh, somebody with a charger in their home, uh, a hotel, a hospitality or healthcare agency. If they want to own the equipment, well, we have a solution for them. They want to partner with us on who owns it and sharing revenue, we'll partner with us. They want a turnkey, we'll do that. And that way we differentiate ourselves and we're an EV solutions provider and that it's all vertically integrated, meaning that we build our own chargers, we design and develop and maintain our own network, all by blank employees, not by third parties. And um, then, you know, we, we maintain the network and the chargers out in the field. And we're the only company in, this, in the industry to do that full circle. Yeah. So I feel like your bread and butter is... That that middle ground, the hotels, the targets, the Walgreens, um, the working with businesses, is that your strength? Because I feel like some of the larger there's other players that focus more on the level three and the 350 kilowatt DC chargers. I did notice you are offering some DC fast chargers, uh, but is your strength in that 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 middle market, that level two municipalities and whatnot? Always. Yeah. And, and, but it's based on a fundamental premise. So that, and we know when we look at McKinsey data and data from Bloomberg and others, Price uh, Cooper's Waterhouse and other research firms, that they continuously come back with the same data for the last 10 years, that 90% of the kilowatts dispensed globally are going to be level two. And then the other 10% are going to be DC fast charger or other, depending on what uh, the other is. And it could be 110, it could be a couple other things, right, that are mixed into that. To that. So our portfolio is around there. It's about 6% DC right now, and the other 94% uh, being uh, L2s. L2, when you install an L2 charger, it's about 15 to 21 in terms of the capital needed as opposed to what a DC fast charger is. So, you know, and I've installed uh, five, six, seven thousand 7,000 DC fast charging stations. So I know quite a bit about that, and we do it. And we're installing in Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Vermont, uh, and a couple other states right now on the DC fast charger front. But really, you need to charge these vehicles where they sit. And when we ask this fundamental question of everybody, hey, where's the gas station in the future? People want to say, it's well, it's putting chargers along the highway. But no, the gas station of the future is in your home. It's in your multifamily dwelling. It's at your doctor's office. It's at your workplace for workplace charging. That's the gas station of the future. And we really need to focus on the simplicity of charging and the ease of installation to make sure that where that car sits, and it's funny, we all lose sight of this, but the Department of Transportation has published this statistic year in and year out, 95% of the time, the car sits. Yeah. Uh, and this we sits don't like to hear that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like of that 95%, 80% of that's probably at work or home. It's at work, at home, in the multifamily dwelling, all oh, yeah. that. That's where it is. And we can install charging very easily economically. And the, the idea, when you get down to the fundamental premise of what's it about, it's about how do you maximize those av that available capital you have. And what I mean by maximize is create more ports and po create more charging events. And L2 charging does that. But... We cannot and we should not discount DC fast charging because on those routes and on those corridors and on that suburban urban rim where you need either opportunity charging or rescue charging or you forgot to charge overnight. I mean, sometimes I forget to charge. Uh, now, I, I have a workplace charger, so it usually isn't a big deal because then I'll just charge there. But th that exists. So we still need 
a mix. And you've got to have that healthy mix in order to, you know, create, you know, mass adoption of electric vehicles. But the, the opportunity is still in front of us and other companies, right? When you, you look. So by 2030, uh, we need 30 million chargers in, in the ground. We have about 4 million give about uh, on that number right there. It, it, it changes. So we need, you know, roughly, you know, 26 million more to be put in the ground. Uh, and that's at 35% pen rate. And here's what gets really scary when we talk about pen rate. California in the previous quarter was at 22. Now they're averaging a little bit lower because they had a big quarter uh, and Tesla amounted for a significant portion of that big quarter. But when you think about that, so they've hit 22 in one quarter. The number is published at 35% for 30 million chargers. If we start to inch above that, we need a lot more chargers and we're here to help. Uh, yeah. And I think you have a really good point that if there's a higher saturation of these level two chargers, it'll actually lower the need to DC fast charge absolutely. on a trip. And and here's a perfect example. Eric, who's in the room with me right now, we drove to across the state of Michigan in a brand new Mustang Mach-E. Mm -hmm. It had 270 miles of range and it was only we were only driving 180 miles. I would have loved to have driven all the way there and plugged in. We were at an event for six hours, recouped, you know, 15 to 20 miles per hour, mm -hmm. then driven back. And no, we got to a big parking lot. There was another, there was a hundred vehicles there. It was a Tesla event that we got invited to, to give a little speech. And we took a Mach-E kind of as a joke. <laughs> and uh, none of the vehicles were charging in that lot. It was just a lot uh, near the beach, near the beach on Lake Michigan in Muskegon. And if that lot would have been filled with a hundred level two chargers, you know, sometime in the future, everybody would have topped off. You, and then you're you done. Yeah, you're done. And so instead, we had to charge twice. I charged before I got there and then once again on the way back. And with that much range, 270 miles of range, it, it seemed kind of ridiculous that I had to charge twice for 20 or 30 minutes both times. I would have rather just plugged in while we were there. And, and that's it. Destination charging is it's a big part of what we're trying to do here in Blank to solve that very problem right there that look, you, it's there if you need it, but don't be dependent on it. Let's charge these vehicles where they sit. And you know, the, and there's some states that are being progressive about it. Massachusetts just put a rule in place that if you touch your parking garage, do any type of thing that requires a permit, you need 10% chargers. Now, it's a good start. It's not enough, but that's a good start for a whole state. Yeah, And yeah. we need more of that type of legislation and movement throughout the U.S. Yeah. Uh, in order to, to drive this forward. Yeah. So what is your thoughts and your plan on either acquiring land or real estate and the locations that are prime that people, that charging companies are going to fight over? Are we at that point or are you doing the convincing? Do you approach company A or B and convince them, hey, put this in? Or does a does a does a business that has a parking lot with a thousand spots, do they shop out, shop around their charging? Like where, well, where all, are we all at? All of the above, all, all the above. So the difference between a company like Blink and let's, let's focus on the owner operated model. So we can compete against two other prime owner operator models in the U.S., EVgo and ChargePoint, but they do mostly DC fast charging. So, and we do a lot of L2 and we do some DC. So we're not in head-to-head -head competition because while they're servicing maybe the lot that is on the main thoroughfare there uh, and they put charging in there, the garage where everybody's parking to, to go, we're going to go there. And, you know, we're going to put a whole bunch of L2s. If they have mixed use, we're going to put L2s in the residential section, you know, and in the long dwell time retail section. And where they're going to predominantly want to put them in where it's fast moving. 30 minutes or less is usually the time frame. Now, we'll do those when we have state funding to do it. And NEVI funding, which is going to be coming out for everybody, because the, the return on capital on um, a DC fast charge is a really tough equation uh, to get around. But we can get a return on C and a positive ROI on an L2 in 18 months to 24 months, no problem. Uh, so it's a good return on capital for our investors and everyone else and spreads the dollars further. 
So sometimes we compete, but most of the time when it's hospitality, healthcare, uh, we're, we're just going into a big university in Southern California. And we're outfitting the whole university, DC Fast Chargers and L2s. Um, and it's in excess of three to 400 chargers uh, for that whole university complex. And they came to us and said, look, we need somebody just to take it over, install, put them in and create a positive charging experience. And that's perfect for us. Nice. And when it comes to your hardware and obsolescence, um, the, you said the company has been around since 2009. Mm -hmm. How many, how often do you refresh the product is, do you improve the screens, the user interface, the payment methodology? Can you explain your, your, maybe your thought process on how you are refreshing old equipment, um, and whatnot? So on, on the owner operator model, as it ages, we refresh it, but there's also a midterm thing that we do. So first, if we take, you know, your, we do a lot of work on healthcare. Uh, and if we install a charger at Kaiser or Lee Valley Health or some of the, the multiplicity of other healthcare companies that we deal with today, if that charger breaks, we don't service chargers in the field. So we put a new one on, put that one back. That one goes back into one of our two facilities, gets refurbished, and it gets rotated back out. And as a result of that process, we build uh, for durability and not for obsolescence. So while we do sell the chargers, we're not banking on built-in obsolescence for a quick sales turn rate. We're built banking on longevity because we don't want to constantly have to buy new chargers to put it on our owner-operator model. Yeah. So we refresh them and update the software and the firmware both over the air and when we bring them in, back in to be bench tested. But on the owner-operator, we keep refreshing the chargers. As a new model will come out, then we'll slowly start to replace those legacy chargers that are out there in the field with the new model. And on the sales side, the same thing applies. Um, you know, as we upgrade uh, different technology, you know, chargers two years ago didn't have 1511.8, which is the plug-in charge, and all of our chargers do today. So we're going to have a need moving forward on the sales model that some people are going to want that technology. Yeah, that's great. Uh, another question I have for you that I, I actually hesitate to ask because I don't want to tip off any criminals. There's going to be millions or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of copper in the world in, in the, in the form of these charging cables. I live in Detroit and there's a huge problem where people will go into houses and pull all the copper piping out during construction, they'll steal it and return it brazen. So is, is there any, do you have any ever, do you lose sleep at night thinking of someone showing up to one of your locations and cutting off all the cords? And I mean, is there any thought into that? Or it, it kind of keeps me up at night because only once did I show up at a Tesla charging station and one of them was missing. It was cut off. And I'm like, Somebody steal it? <laughs> it's gone. So you know, vandalism and theft. It it, it is uh, it's part of the industry. Um, you know, and it depends on location and its frequency rate. So it's there now. I'm happy to say it's not at an alarming percentage. Now, so, you know, sometimes you have to add additional security. Sometimes you have to say there's cameras. Sometimes you have to do a more deep analysis on what's called a lumens test when you get there and create more lighting on it um, to, to deter, right? Now you also have that on the DC fast charger, when we install that, they'll start to cut into one of those cables and it's filled with industrial liquid because they're, they're liquid cooled cables. They stop right away. You know, before they get in the copper, they're drenched um, and you know, they, they don't go any further. And then a lot of times they're afraid to, you know, cut the L2 chargers because they think they're live. Um, so it's there, but it hasn't, it hasn't gotten to, I'd say, a hysterical level that'll keep me up. But, and you manage for it and you cost it out, right? We, we do have a vandalism and theft rate number that we look at. So when we know, it, we, we, we go into the ROI analysis, knowing that we're going to have to do that level of upgrade uh, on yeah. that and, le and level of change out in the field. Yeah, I feel like given the high cost of 
the high average transaction price for an electric vehicle, I feel like charging saturation is happening in higher income areas, nice malls, California. And as EVs become cheaper over the no course of the next decade, it will penetrate areas that have traditionally higher crime rates. And uh, that's usually the last place for uh, new technology to penetrate. So, and, But we need to do it. Yeah, we have to do it. I just It's something that living in Detroit, and I lived in Flint, Michigan for uh, five years as well. If it's not bolted down and it's made of copper, it's gone. And it, it's, you know, something I've thought of. And, and we see a slightly, so we have a, a inner city and air quality disadvantage and income disadvantage program for chargers and vehicles in Los Angeles. Uh, so the, the vandalism rate's a little higher um, on, on those chargers, but you go back to the same type of things is you keep them visible, uh, keep them up, uh, updated. And, you know, then hopefully the community starts to adopt the technology better. And then they start to make sure that those, because we do car share on these chargers and then the community wants the cars and they know they want to, so they self-police to a degree. And that's what you have to do is you have to really make them part of the community. Um, and really where we only see high levels of vandalism where there's a high homeless percentage around a particular station. But again, you know, we're quick on it. We go back in, pop it out, put a new one on, send that charger back, attach a new cable to it and recirculate. Uh, and that model is serving us well. Nice. How big is your fleet for that uh, repair operation? Do you have a certain number of people within a distance of the chargers or how do you do that? Yeah, so we have a national contract um, and all the drivers within that national contract have chargers in the truck. Oh, nice. Um, and they're not allowed to go to an L2 site without the charger in the truck. Okay. Yeah, because it's now on DC fast charger, it's a little different because you, you do a lot of field service on that. Yeah. Um, and but what you do is you create a learning system and, you know, you use your firmware and your software together to diagnose uh, chargers remotely to prevent the truck being from being rolled. And, you know, you go for about an 80 percent number that you can fix most problems over the air. And then the 20 percent, you got to roll, got to roll the truck. Um, but you make sure the truck is stacked because you don't want repeat rolls. It's not economically viable yeah, yeah. in this sort of situation. But it's a learning system. So the more repairs you do on a particular charging platform, the smarter you get. And then, you know, you're up to a high percentage level of letting, you know, institutional knowledge combined with, I'm not going to say AI, but close to AI intelligence that says what you need to do and become more efficient. And that's where we're going as an industry. You know, we're reducing the overall cost over time. The chargers on the L2 side are becoming a little commoditized. So the price is coming down on them. The price of replacing them and servicing them is getting better as we have scale. And that you're going to see that trend continue. Yeah. So when it comes to your products versus the competitors, having worked at EVgo and Electrify America, how do you think you stack up and, and do you do any benchmarking? Because at Monroe Associates, we, we're tearing down electric vehicles like crazy. Mm -hmm. And we're always comparing and contrasting everything from the material choices to the fastening strategies. How, how do you think you stack up and do you have anything in the pipeline you can either talk about or intimate uh, yeah. that's coming? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So and you have to, you have to unpack it a little bit to get it, you know, what the true facts are. Uh, so uh, both EVgo and EA on the owner operator model, they don't produce any of their own equipment. Mm -hmm. It's all a third-party contract yep. manufacturing. We do some third-party contract manufacturing as well. So for all of that, we'll stack our chargers up against theirs every day. Um, on the L2 side, we specialize in that. And this is all we do 24-7. And we're slowly migrating the majority of our L2 chargers over to we build them. We're at 75% and growing on that number. So I'll take all of them on all day because all of them are going to go to a third-party manufacturer. I'm vertically integrated. I control the manufacturing quality and the network compatibility with that. When you're managing multiple platforms, that gets more complex. So on L2, I'm just going to shout and say we're good. And DC Fast Charger, there's a degree of, I would say, 
uh, sameness and equality moving across the board. What the change is going to happen is who's moving to new technology. And what we see the sort of the, the interesting machinations is when we first started uh, putting in 350 kilowatt charging about four or five years ago now, uh, you know, you used a standard uh, pedestal where you had a pedestal up front and you had all the power modules and everything on a power platform next to the transformer, next to the rectifier um, and, and the switch gear. Uh, well, now you're seeing standalone units that are 350 kilowatts. Uh, so there's a bit of a change there um, in, in that. And then the other one is reducing the form factor in, in, internally by getting away from the, the previous standard on power modules and moving to silicon carbide. And power modules with silicon uh, carbide have a much smaller uh, form factor interior, uh, less heat issues within the interior of the charger, creating more room and creating a reduced size. So right now we're in final development of our 240 kilowatt DC fast. Um, and that will have silicon carbide and it will support both CCS and Tesla. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I saw that. That was right right front and center or actually to the left on your on your website. I, I saw uh -huh. that. That looks like it's a smaller form factor as well because silicon, it's all, yeah. Yeah, it's all, so it's 240, which, you know, we, we did, and there's the popular that 350 is hit, but there's. You, rare, you, know, you there's, rarely get that not, in the charging there's, curve. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's no vehicles that charge it. No. <laughs> the, the Tycon's getting kind of close. Uh, but beyond that, there's nobody at that. Uh, and most profiles drop yeah. and, and, you know, the, when you do it a long time, you get to tell a type of vehicle by their charging profile, yeah. cause then you know it and you can look at the profile and go, Oh, well, that's an Audi. Oh, that's a Ford Mustang over there. It's like the, finger everyone has, a yeah, it is like the fingerprint. It's, it is their fingerprint. Yeah. Uh, and you get really geeked out on it, but uh, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of fun to kind of recognize a vehicle. Uh, by that, but they all flatten out at sub two mm -hmm. and right in there and they run a really elegant profile is when you, you peak and then you drop a bit and then you got a good run rate uh, on that on a plateau and you got some that do that. And th that's really good for the driver of that car. Yeah. I've, I've taken road trips with uh, F-150 Lightning, Rivian R1S, Rivian R1T, Amaki, and then Tesla. Uh, Sandy and I did an 8,000 mile road trip in 11 days. Wow. And, and a lot of people are like, in one of the days we weren't going anywhere. We were in California. We stayed for a day. So really it was 8,000 miles in 10 days of driving. And we charged, I think, 48 times in that trip. All Tesla supercharging stations except for one overnight charger in Corpus Christi, Texas where we uh we went to spacex like we anyways and uh so it was 47 charge stations and it was nice i have all that data and people are like i don't believe that you did that many charges in that long and you pulled a log and it's, everything's time stamped you know and it's like we did it so i truly think in order to be in this space you have to kind of walk the walk take a long road trip to experience it and i've taken road trips in non-tesla vehicles and we're not using the Tesla supercharger network. And there's still a little bit to be desired there of, you know, but it's getting better. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, and it's, I think that the NACS topic is really overblown. The connector is not that important, but really it is, it's the number of chargers, the location of the network and the seamless nature with which the vehicle interfaces with the charging system. And that can be a standard or a goal that your company or other charging companies can get to that same level of interoperability where you pull up, you plug in, and it's charging with eliminating as many steps as possible and also improving the preconditioning of the vehicle as you approach it. Now, that's really most important for DC fast charging and your uh you know, your bread and butter being the level two, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily as important. It's just getting plugged in quickly so you can get in the store, get in the mall, wherever. If it's a long process of making payment or scanning a QR code or pulling a credit card out, people will be le more likely to just go in and get their stuff and charge at home. So what are you doing studying 
the user experience and, and what types of strides and improvements have you made over time and where do you think you'll be in the future? So it's a great question and I agree with you. Uh, it's a lot of overblown stuff. Uh, it, you know, we, I'll, I'll start with one stat. Our number one plug-in vehicle today is a Tesla by my, my, my make. And it's going to be a number one vehicle tomorrow too. So uh, when we add a Tesla cable to our charger, and we've already experimented with this. So we, we actually did it for shits and grins on a L2 last week. And we just took the cable, attached it, and then went to charge a vehicle. Uh, no problem. Uh, so it, it's very easy to do. But then it comes into the advantages of how a proprietary network emerged, uh, as you outlined. And the proprietary network could embed everything in the vehicle and the charger and the payment system, all that, because it's closed, right? So now the great experiment is going to be, okay, how do you take that? And then you say you're going to have a multiplicity. So what's the payment system? Where's the data go? Who owns it? So we have yet to work that out and we haven't heard much on it, right? So 15L is plug and charge, but it's CCS plug and charge. And it still has a lot of kinks to be worked out for it, but it has potential. And then the 1511A chip, when you embed it in a charger, gives you vehicle to grid and other technologies as well, because the same chip manages both. So there's still a lot to be worked out. Ours is we're going to follow the OEM and we're going to determine what we need to pro program on a software basis and a firmware basis to meet that unified customer experience that you want. You know, and you know, some of what is out there, because Tesla was proprietary, they weren't first to put credit cards on units, which is the number one failure point for a customer. They didn't have to do it, you know, and now hopefully California and some other states repeal policy that mandated an old mag strip credit card reader being installed. I mean, you want to create customer dissatisfaction? Yeah, have that. And if we can go back to simplifying the experience, but we still have to say, okay, if it's a universal charger, we have to figure out that multiplicity of payment, privacy of data, you know, does, I mean, I'm certain that Ford doesn't want all their data going to Tesla, they're competitors. So you got to figure that part out and still create that seamless experience. So we're talking about that. We're, we're engaging with partners on that. Uh, to your point on the, we had the minute, we made an announcement and we'd already were working on it. We've had seven, eight, nine, ten cable manufacturers just beating down our doors. And we've already moved into an RFP that we're going to be launching soon on who's going to supply our cables and connectors. Uh, I mean, th this is the good news about the industry that sort of the Tesla thing is muddled, is that it is matured in its manufacturing capacity. Tesla fabricates everything, so it's a different thing, right? The, out there for CCS and globally, We've spawned a whole industry and they're getting ready to pivot. You know, I talked to my friends at ABB and they're like, Tesla, yeah, we're just dropping the cable on. Yeah, this, this is, come on guys, what's, where's the big deal? And we feel the same way. Uh, and I talked to some of the other charging manufacturers and we all have the same attitude toward this. We're not sure, you know, people are going crazy about this and says, guys, this is just a matter of adding the cable. But we have to be careful though, as an industry, and we have to educate drivers or we're going to have some backlash because in your Mach-E, you can't charge at a Tesla station today. And unless it's a new, brand new station with a 10 to 12 foot cable, you'll never be able to charge it. And we, so we, we've got a, this expectation that you're going to be able to just go to the legacy Tesla stations and charge. That's not happening, folks. And so you got to keep that in, in, in mind. It, there's... You know, if you servicing multiple groups, you need a minimum of 12 to 14 foot cable. And then you have to have some significant cable management to keep it off the ground and off the car. Yeah. And that was what was so elegant about the Tesla stations is that the cable was short and it was like the perfect distance to the car. Sure. And having, I never liked having to back in. It's like, man, I'm just driving and now I got to pull into the parking lot and back in. Like, why didn't they just put it in the front? I guess they could have, but it makes sense because it's best for the car based on the location of the power electronics and the distance from the port to the power electronics. 
it makes sense because other vehicles with ports in different areas end up having a less than ideal uh, cost. So Tesla's you, even thinking, you know. You lose a bit of efficiency, but it's not the efficiency. And there's, I'm, I'm not the engineer, but you get beyond a 14, even a 12, even you start to lose some efficiency and power, but it's not drastic. Yeah. It's yeah. not drastic, but you are right. There's an ideal port between six to seven feet on the cable right there and from the charger itself yeah <laughs> yeah and usually there's one pull through spot at tesla stations usually there's one but it only is for pulling forward where it's the back left corner is your charge mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh, if a mach e i think is front left so you'd have to be sticking out into the parking lot a little it's bit sticking out or laying across multiple yeah yeah which is never good that's bad charging etiquette yeah. so we'll see on this you know they may upgrade some uh ford may upgrade some dumb but if you're a tesla driver and you're coming up the i5 um you, you know you're gonna go i don't want any more vehicles at these stations i have yeah. to queue now yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know so guess what we'll put them in a whole bunch of different places and create a release valve yeah uh with you know, with our stations, you know, through the Nevi program and everything else. So it's good, but we have to still deliver. Nobody likes to charge just like they don't like to give go to the gas station, right? Yeah. And what I would really love is restaurants. If you offered free charging at a restaurant, hey, come in, order a meal and get free charging. Because a restaurant, you're going to be there for an hour and a half, maybe two hours. location. Yeah. That's like obviously hotels but then restaurants i'm like man that that'd be we're, we're we're hitting them up every day with opportunities if there's a rebate in the area we tell them we can get a rebate we can install this cheap so it's it's part of our sales plan and they're getting there right they're they're starting to see it and, you know and it's all who's the property management company and that's what we do on our site acquisition team they they manage that they negotiate it and then they get the installs. All right. Well, this is great. I'm getting a lot of new insight here. It's and uh, you know, I called you. I called you the grandfather of charging. I meant to call you the godfather, and I felt bad. I'm like, <laughs> sure. I'm like, because I was, I was as you were talking. I'm formulating. I'm like, man, I feel like I'm talking to somebody from the Godfather. And I said, uh, anyways, I, just want to clarify there. Well, I'll take Godfather or grandfather. It's fine. Oh, man. You know? um, anyways, so. Thanks for all that the information on the charging, but now I want to shift gears a little bit and go to automotive industry trends. What's your thoughts on the year that EVs will make up 50% or more new car sales? What year do you think? I mean, a lot of people are predicting stuff, but I'll let you form your own opinion. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at, let's first, let's go in the United States and let's break it up a bit. Um, so we know there's a point of no return in California. So 2035, you, you just can't sell them, right? So, you know, if you look at a realistic estimate, that means before that date, you're going to be at 50% penetration. So let's, let's break that up real quick. That is the fifth or arguably the sixth largest economy in the world is going to be that way. Now let's go the other way and let's look at the Netherlands and let's look at Amsterdam. And so, you know, Norway just shocks everybody, right? And so Amsterdam's looking at Norway and they're going, okay, what do we do? So two weeks ago, they passed legislation to ban any internal combustion engine from coming into the city, doesn't matter what the platform is, in 2025. So, and you're seeing other municipalities throughout Europe adopt similarly strict things. So 50% pen, depending on the region, in the world and in the United States, we're going to see, you know, before that 2035 timeframe, and you'll see the accelerated one in the U.S. in California, New York, Massachusetts, and others who adopt that 2035 mandate. Now, what happens then is, and what we can't predict and we can't measure, but, it, you know, it's kind of the, you know, this is where the guesswork comes in. You can probably put an algorithm on this, get a better answer than I'm going to give you. But you have the pressure from... The OEMs aren't going to make, you know, this car and that car. So the choices become more EV centric. You know, if you're looking at a dealership in California, you know, you're starting to wind down on ICE sales, you know, two years, three years, four years in advance of that, right? And getting your sales up. 
And then the availability in the other states starts to dwindle on the ISIS, which has an accelerant effect on EV adoption. So now that's what the, that's the part that's hard to measure, right? So I'm thinking 2035, we're approaching globally over the 50% in Europe, and then the US, we're getting close to that number in that time frame, based on all those variables mixed together. Yeah. Yeah, you have some good reasoning there, because California would have to be closer to 75% in 2030 to offset states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, the Midwestern states, which are rural. And there is some, you know, large municipalities. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then Texas and Florida, which may be more, you know, opposite from a political perspective when you're considering adoption of these green policies and rules and regulations, which will be less than 50. So yeah, in order to get the U.S. above 50, I know Sandy Monroe was thinking 2028 to 2030, and I'm more that 2030 to 2032, And you gave that five-year window. It's a pretty big window, but that's all right. A lot of variables. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, I have to put a data scientist on it to give me yeah. exact, but look. If it's that, I mean, that's just huge. It, it, you know, even if we hit the number by, you know, your analysis, right? That means we're short on what everybody's planning for on chargers already. Yeah. So we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're lined up for a real busy decade or oh, more. A, a, absolutely. And, you know, it, and it doesn't matter whether you're a red state or a blue state, you know, and we, we have to think about this evolution about this. First, the fuel is all domestically produced. This is American jobs. It adds American jobs at our power companies, at our utilities, at our productions. It adds more green energy to, to supply, which is high-tech American jobs. More and more companies are producing here. We're building a, a greater majority of our char chargers out of our facility in Bowie, Maryland. More American jobs. So before you get in there, well, whether you know, you're environmentalists or a lot, not, we're looking at EVs or a jobs program and their high tech jobs program, you know, for the U.S. economy, including the EV infrastructure players out there, you know, and then, yeah, are there, are there benefits for air quality? Absolutely. Look, I have got a picture that I keep on my desktop of California during the height of COVID when nobody was driving. And two of my friends sent me in, in, individual pictures from their houses. And they could see further and clearer than they'd ever seen in their entire lives in California. So regardless of whether you're environmentally focused or not, there's this huge benefit to lifestyle and improvement in an EV. You know, one of the things I, I saw when I was in Amsterdam uh, last week uh, is they cut down so much on vehicular traffic. It is so now it's a great city to walk around to begin with. So you got that. But, you know, I'm a big fan of New York, but uh, vehicular traffic and noise pollution associated with it, you know, it's a little unsettling at times. So this world that we're going into, it's just going to be more pleasant across the board, regardless of what side of the table you sit on, on, on your political ideology. And I think that's what's kick ass about this space. Yeah, that's a great point about noise pollution, because normally you think of pollution, pollution and um and you mentioned your friends at ABB, uh, myself and four other people from Monroe, we were at the ABB Formula E-Race in ah. Portland this weekend. A little different. I'm a big NASCAR fan, which is like sacrilegious because it's you know they burning, <laughs> burning ethanol and big V8s. But it was different. It was quiet. And ABB actually hosted us. They, uh, they brought us as, as media influencers, even though we're an engineering firm. So, so we play this weird balance where we have a hundred person engineering firm. And then we have this YouTube channel slash podcast. And uh, Sandy and I went along with Eric, Mike and Sue. And we had a chance to talk to those ABB people as well. Um, I think his name was Bob, the e-mobility guy. I know Bob really well. <laughs> yep. yeah. They're good. They're good people. Yep. And they aren't all the, you know, this industry, it's, it's blessed. Because you got a lot of people that believe mm -hmm. in what they're doing, yeah, and you don't see that, you know, always. And you know, we like to joke around, or I like to joke around. You know, we are charging the world, changing the world one charger at a time. Yeah, and it, you know, and I truly believe that. 
Yeah. I have uh, another interesting question for you about charging. So um, it's about the payment method. So I'm really digital now. I have Venmo, I have PayPal, I have Cash App, I have Chase QuickPay on my phone. I have all my credit cards stored here. So if someone stole my wallet, I'd actually be fine. If someone stole my phone and not my wallet, I'd also be fine. So I have this redundancy, this digital redundancy. But one thing that I could not do is take a road trip in an EV with cash. It like I I think it might not even be possible. It's Can not. you? It's not. No. So it, it 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 grew up digitally. It's it's becoming more. And if we look at what's going to happen with credit card readers, I estimate it's going to become more digitally. Everything is going to e either be, you know, plug and play technology with the vehicle, and or tap and done. Yeah. And and it's the safest and securest. You know, you know, digging through your wallet for credentials or key fobs or all these other things that that, you know, we're, we're beyond that. So it's the move towards a cashless society. And, you know, that's not inconsistent with other industries. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think we're you're going to see that. So the question is, what do you do with the cashless? And that's the so that's sort of the digital equity issue what we have with disadvantaged communities and how do they engage in the EV revolution and and you know we're working with the city of LA on this topic right now how do we still create something that gives them access if they're if they live in a cash world and EVs are all digital uh, and we have some solutions coming up with the city okay yeah because that's I know that it's not my thinking at all, but there's some, there's a small fraction of the United States population, probably very small, that is against being tracked. You know, so they don't want a credit card. They don't. They they want to just be off the grid completely. And this essentially puts a name to a bank account, a name to a credit card, to a location, and the amount of data that can be collected on that person is also almost of the same value for yep. uh, for what you call a. Uh, advertiser because now you're collecting charge locations in front of certain uh, businesses or certain restaurants. So now you can build a profile on where people shop, where people eat, where they stop, how frequently they stop. So that when you're actually driving home, a billboard could change and advertise to you or to a group of people uh, a different restaurant or a sale or something. It could even get real tailored to near real time advertising based on where you're at. And I think the data side of thing is a real untapped potential. And uh, I feel like there'll be a little bit of resistance to that, but I don't care. There, I, I like targeted there, advertising. There will be. Yeah. There, there, I mean, it's going to be there. And, and you're going to have holdouts that are just say they're never going to do it. And there's got to be a solution for that holdout, right? Because, you, you know, because this is the U.S., right? And we got to have choices and options yeah. for people, you know. Yeah, I'm always wondering, will the United States have a small pool of cars that look like what it looks like when you go to Cuba? So you go to Cuba, there's all these 1950s whatever uh, cars driving around. And <laughs> I know right where you're going. <laughs> so you'll have everyone transitioning to EVs, but instead of 1950s vehicles, you'll have 2010 you know, Malibu, 2010, you know, Yukons and Suburbans and whatever, still on the road 80 years from now, you know, all patinaed and people specializing in keeping these dinosaurs alive. And I think you'll see some weird, you know, ghost set of cars. So I'll tell you a story that emphasizes that. So to a degree. So, uh, you know, being you know, a corporate uh, person like, and we've relocated a whole lot. And the last relocation, uh, when we left Nissan and one of my, my kids who's now grown up quite a bit, but then he never really was conscious of anything but the slew of Leafs and then the test cars that I had in the driveway. And I had two chargers set up in the driveway and I'm always, and that was it. And his greatest thing as a kid was if he was in the car, he got to plug in. He loved that. That was his job, right? So we plug in. So we're reloading and we're in some temporary rental cars before we got an EV. And we go up to a gas station. And he goes, what are we doing? And my, 
my wife goes, well, Connor, we got to fill the gas with car. He goes, fill the, you mean we're putting that smelly, dangerous stuff in a car? He goes, we don't drive those kind of cars. And so his reality, and now he's an adult, was that, no. And, you know, but the reality of two generations in front of him is that there's some people there that are going to be exactly that. I got to, I can't, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to spur this whole sub industry. So, you know, and then you're going to have these two pressure one another. And it's, so you'll see it just like Cuba and it'll spawn these little industries and then state regs will say what's included in it. And there's not, I look at it like we see antique cars today, right? And what classic cars and states have regulations on what is one and what's not. And you have mileage restrictions on them in order to get classified in there and it can't be your everyday driver and this. So there'll be a whole class of regulations that come in to be able to keep a vehicle like that. And then exemptions for farming equipment, but everything is going to roll forward, right? We're now in aviation. We're now in Marine. We're now moving into farming equipment. We're moving into port vehicles and all the different ports throughout the United States. So slowly, but surely you're going to see all different modes of transportation become electrified to a degree. Now, the big debate is on heavy duty. Does it go with predominant hydrogen or does it go with an EV with charging? And that debate, you know, it's, I think it's yeah. 75% EV right now, 25% hydrogen. Yeah. For long haul, I could see hydrogen making sense. Yeah, me too. But in the city, you can have a spoken hub where you use long haul solutions to get it to a city. And then you use electric versions to get it to all the businesses and, and whatnot. And, and that's the world I think we're going to end up living in. Yeah. You know, maybe Just, you more so than me, but yeah, <laughs> that's really, it's a really cool story because there's probably not that many kids that grew up with an EV only household that early because the adoption rate is so small. And usually there would be a mix where people may have some EVs and, some internal combustion. Oh, yeah. We had a gas car. We just never drove it around. Uh, town. Okay. All right. Yeah. And it did, you know, to them, it wasn't fun. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, the EV was much more fun for them than the uh, other car. Uh, so, and, 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 you know, you're the only people early that had an EV and everybody would look at you and I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. And then I had an Audi e-tron for a long time. Okay. Yeah. The e-tron was, Decent. The range isn't that great. Wasn't it like 180? Yeah, the range, they've improved it significantly oh, in yeah. the next version. Uh, but, you know, it's these different worlds of EVs, right? And I'm a car guy, and that's the way I cut my teeth. Uh, and the fit and finish and the stitching and everything on that was good. And, you know, sometimes you hear people say that's the knock on Tesla. The interior finishes are more pedestrian than what you get in a true luxury car. And so what drives you? You know, uh, and, you know, I'm driven more now towards, hey, how quality build? What's the fitness finish? Does everything line up? Did they use quality materials? And it's an EV platform. But this is why I think we're going to hit these adoption numbers. Because yeah. if you want that today, you can have it. Yeah. You want a truck? You can have it. Yeah. And uh, what's your thought on the Cybertruck? Do you think it's crazy or do you like it? You know, I was on Fox Business News uh, last week. And before I got on, she started in her bit, the Cybertruck. They said it was going to be out. They say now it's going to be out again. Should we believe them? Should we not? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a tough playing field in there when you have Dodge, Chevy, and Ford in there, and then Rivian in there at, you know, very viable trucks, Right. And they got there before Tesla did. So I think Tesla's still going to have its level of adoption and backlog of sales on it. But then I think it becomes a competitive race, yeah. right? And who's really going to be the winner, to your point, in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Montana? You know, what platform is going to win there? And we don't know yet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think if they'd entered alone, you're going to see that same brilliant Tesla effect that we've seen and admired throughout the industry, right? But this one, I, I, you know, this one, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical that they're they're moving into a competitive thing where you got dominant players now in there. 
Yeah, my perception through all the traveling that we do, so Sandy and I, we've been to Norway, we've been to Sweden, Japan, Vietnam, all over. We go to these conferences. The most common thing I hear from people who come up and talk to us is, oh, I have a Model 3 right now, but I, I'm waiting for my Cybertruck. I'm waiting for my Cybertruck. None of the people are truck owners. They all want the Cybertruck. They have one on order. They couldn't wait. They bought a Rivian. Sandy has a Rivian, but he's like, I'm waiting until my Cybertruck gets here. And he's going to sell the Rivian. So there's, there's this huge amount of people that aren't even truck people that want the Cybertruck, mostly because it's like this wild-looking, stainless steel, DeLorean-looking, ridiculous thing. They just want it. So I think they're, Tesla's not actually really even going after the truck people. They're going after a, another huge swath of, of consumers that don't even know they need a truck and don't really want a truck. But because it's an EV and it's going to have a big range and it's going to be really fast, they want it. And that's, that's my assessment is everybody it, wants one. It, it's a good hypothesis. Now, where I want to go over, if I'm a, a manufacturer on a truck, I want to have a truck that's going to work in fleet because that's where the truck business is. Yeah. And, you know, you got to sell the fleets. And we'll you see. Know, we, we won the post office business. Yeah. And, you know, so we're, you know, that's 41,500 chargers, you know, over the next three years. Oh, wow. And nice. those are all fleet applications. Yeah. And so, you know, that that's a huge market when it comes to the truck space. Big, big market. So we'll see. Yeah. I, I mean, me, I'm too much of a traditionalist in that area. I, I like the Ford Lightning. I love the Rivian. Um, you, you know, so I'll go with my normal pickup truck. I think you're right, though. So your F-150 buyer is not going to go buy a Cybertruck. No. They're going to go buy a Ford Lightning. Yeah. And we have a Lightning. It's in our uh, it's our work truck at Monroe, and we have two that are torn down as well. But um, and I've driven it. It it's not awe inspiring though. You get in it, and it's a truck. It's just it's like it, it's like an F one fifty. And <laughs> yeah. sure, there's a little bit of software. There's Blue Cruise and and whatever, but it doesn't really. And disrupt. it doesn't really disrupt. And <laughs> yeah. most people don't know. Like if you didn't know that the headlights were different, that's about the biggest thing. People don't know. And some people want the world to see that they drive an EV. It's like back yeah, when people drove Priuses mm -hmm. to Virtue Signal. There's a really, really great South Park episode about Priuses. I don't know if you're a South Park fan, but I recommend watching it about people buying Priuses and, and movie stars were buying Priuses like 12 years ago because they wanted to show that they were green. I think people still want the world to know that they're, you know. They, they, they do. And, but is that an inexhaustible buyer? I don't know. That's where, you know, is it mainstream and is it volume? Yeah. And, and everybody did. I'll tell you one funny story on the bleeding edge uh, on leaf. So, you know, we had a VIP program uh, on it and you had a lot of people that were just getting it because it's green and I want to be green and I want to be seen this way. One particular celebrity in uh, California, movie star. So um, he was on the VIP. So he got one of the first 100 that were out, right? Hand delivered to his house, everything. Uh, and we get a call from his assistant and says, there might be a problem at the house. He's improperly charging the car. So, so I dispatched one of the best guys we had that managed infrastructure from us. So he gets out there and he calls me back and he says, Hey, Brendan, uh, what do I do? And I go, well, what do you mean? What's the problem? He goes, he put together a whole bunch of extension cords and they're melting to his patio. And I said, how bad is it? He goes, they're melting. And I'm <laughs> like, okay, clean it up, go buy some new extension cords get the new charger installed and just get out of there. That's and so he, he's packing up everything and this very well known comes out and he goes, Hey, it looks like I have all new extension cords. And he goes, yours melted. <laughs> how may, how long was it? It was like a hundred feet. Oh yeah. Yeah. He had it all, all the way out to his driveway. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, 
That's that's the problem when someone has a property big enough where it, you have hundreds it, of feet of extension cord. And, yeah. they, and it all melted down. <laughs> that's pretty funny. So we've come a long way since that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. All right. Well, it's been an hour. I really appreciate it. This has been great. Uh, Absolutely. You're, you're more fun and funnier than I thought. Sometimes ah, we have, sometimes we, we have, we have these guests and sometimes it's kind of a snooze. I won't say who we've had on recently, but this has been enjoyable. So thank yeah, you. It's Brendan. fun when you like the space, right? And you like yeah. the dialogue and you like chatting about it and you like the hypotheticals. What yeah. could it be? This is what we're about. So having this dialogue is good. Yeah. So yeah. I love it. And hopefully our viewers and listeners now know a little bit more about Brendan, his story, and his company, Blink. So I really appreciate it. Any last statements before I sign us off? No, buy an EV, get a good charging station. We got plenty for you. Uh, Let's keep driving the revolution. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Monroe Live podcast. Now we're going to have Eric sign us off.